0: We're gonna talk about a variety of topics today, but one that I, I'm really excited about is talking about how we have a God who is he is fiercely committed to us. He uh he is so devoted to us. We're talking like covenant devotion. And it's really cool how the story of Isaac and Rebecca reflects that. And we're also going to talk about Jewish eschatology. Who can tell me what eschatology is? Yeah, like the eschaton in Greek is the end, right? So eschatology is talking about the uh, the end of days, about things that are going to happen uh, at the culmination of history, right before Messiah comes back and uh, assumes the throne of David in Jerusalem. So uh, we're going to look at some fun stuff like that. Let's look at Second Peter first. If you want to turn to Second Peter, as as you could hear in the translation that we're, we were reading, it had some of the original Hebrew names for these apostles. So Simon Peter in Hebrew is Shimon everybody say Shimon Shimon is like it was the Jewish name of that time I think there are nine different Shimon's in the New Testament I'm going to do a little I'm going to do a little overview of the Hebrew names of people in the in the uh, in the apostolic scriptures yeah and uh, I counted them so that's how I know that Um, Peter is uh, from the Greek Petros which means rock the Aramaic, which is very close to the Hebrew name for, uh, for this guy, is uh, Kepha. Everybody say Kepha. You remember sometimes he was called Cephas? Yeah, well, that Cephas is from Kepha, the Aramaic word for rock. So if you can imagine a guy named Rocky, in, in, in Greek you'd call him Petros, and in Aramaic you'd call him Kepha. That was the nickname that Yeshua gave this apostle. He basically named him Rocky. So this is, this is a letter from Rocky to the faithful. Like, look, that's the idea right we say Peter or whatever and we don't have a clue what it means in their language but that's what it means it's like Simon the rock yeah. so I'm um, we're going we're gonna hear from the rock today yeah. that was a different name a different but it might have been related yep okay. <laughs> he, uh, he defines himself here as a, a bond servant and that has the connotation of slave he's like a slave of the Messiah which is really cool but it also has the connotation of uh, the type of servant that's defined in the Torah You remember there's a special ritual if you want to serve someone for your whole life because you're so devoted to that person then you go through a special ritual and uh, that's what we're talking about here when we get to that passage in the Torah we'll read about it and then we'll understand what was in uh, Shimon Kepha's mind here okay here there's a word that I've wondered for years what it meant when I was growing up in, in an evangelical church it's the word godliness i i can't say i ever really connected with that word like it was a really good sounding word you know when it talks about it but i don't feel like i ever really connected with that word like i understood the concept of godly it's you know I, like to me uh to say someone's godly is a great compliment like that, he's a really godly man you know it's like he's really tight with the almighty uh, maybe he uh, exudes characteristics of god but uh i I really kind of wanted to know what that word meant. And so I did a word study on it this last week. And I want to share with you some of my findings. Maybe it will help, help this word come to life for us. The reason I wanted to bring it up today is because in chapter 1, verse 3, he talks about godliness. He talks about how the power of God has given us everything we need to live a godly life, to practice godliness. And, uh, wow, second time. And... Um, i lost my bookmark for the second time (laughs) and uh interestingly enough if you're reading the uh the books of the apostolic scriptures in their original manuscript order then this is the first time this term is mentioned and i'm really big on the law of first mention the first time something's mentioned it's really important so we want to dig in so let's let's have a look at this term together you know how a couple weeks ago we talked about how the authors of the New Testament, you know, we have the Bible in English, right? Um, it came to us usually translated from the Greek manuscripts, but you're dealing with a bunch of Jewish people who wrote the New Testament. So they thought in Hebrew terminology. That was their, that was their theological language. That was, that was their heart language. It was the language they prayed in. Um, it's the language they read the, you know, the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible in and so when we see a term it's good to look at the greek and understand the greek but also to retro translate back into the hebrew and ask what were they saying in hebrew and how does that fit into the uh the thought pattern of the tanakh of the of the hebrew bible so we're going to do that with this word i i brought a couple of my translations again we're going to we're going to spend some time with the sages some of the uh, pioneers of the messianic jewish movement here and uh, we're going to see what they have to say about this word in Hebrew and also what it says in Greek. Let's, let's look at the Greek first. The Greek word for godliness is uh, it's Strong's number 2150. And uh, it's, it's only used in this letter and in a couple of Paul's letters and once in the book of Acts. So it's not actually used very much. And it's the word uh, Eusebia. Everybody say Eusebia. That's like godliness or whatever. And uh, here, here, here's, uh, here's the passage from Acts chapter 3. It'll give you a better understanding of Eusebia. Um, it's when um, Peter and John heal the, the lame guy. And everybody's like, wow! And they're all cr- crowding around them in the temple. And uh, then we read, but when Peter saw this, he, relied, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why are you staring at us as if by our own power or our own Eusebia we had made him walk and here in the new american standard it's translated as piety our own power or piety we uh we made him walk it uh th- this word Eusebia it comes from strongs 2152 uh Eusebias. and that word means like godly or devout or like pious practicing piety okay did you hear that devout one of the translations of this word is devout So godliness has something to do with like being devoted to God, practicing devotion. Mm. This is interesting. Um, I have a couple of my versions here. Here, here's like the Aramaic uh, Peshitta text of the New Testament. It's what the Eastern Church has read. Um, You know, some scholars would believe that it's actually the original manuscripts, and the Greek was a translation of it. Uh, We won't go there today, but it is, it is, it is interesting to note it. The Peshitta here has this word as a, where is it, Yerat Elohim, the fear of God. Then we have uh, Isaac Zalkinson, a pioneer messianic Jew from the 1800s. He wrote a very poetic version of the New Testament in Hebrew. He has the word Yerat Shemaim, the the fear of heaven here. But the one that I like most is Delich. Um. I, I think Dalitsch is on to something here. Again, he's like, he was like a Christian Hebraist from the 1800s. He rendered this word as chasidut. Can you say chasidut? It's like ut on the end of a word means uh, a state of being, right? So like, I am in, uh, because I'm an Abba, I'm a father, I, uh, I am in a state of abah, abahut, being an Abba. You can hear the ut on the end, right? So chasidut means being a chasid in, in Hebrew. Uh, what is a Chassid? Hmm. That is where things get really cool because this Torah portion is where that Hebrew term Chassid first comes up, and I want to go there. Have any of you heard the term like Chassid before? Have you ever heard of Hasidic Jews, the the Hasidic movement? Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a term that most people know. Hey, what m- most people don't know is that it's used all the way back in uh, these chapters of Genesis, and it describes something about God, and it describes something about when we're like really devoted to him and that really brings that whole concept of godliness to life for me um, the other the other place where this t- um, word comes up is in the uh, in Paul's letters specifically not in all of them they only come up in his personal letters when he's writing to Timothy or Titus they're like his protégés right when he was writing to these guys he used this term this idea of godliness. So whatever whatever this term meant to Paul, it wasn't like a big public thing that he he talked about a lot, at least that he never touched on in his letters. It seems like it was more of a like an inner concept for him. It was like a personal practice. So oh, let's look at one more one more place where this term comes up in the book of Acts. Acts chapter ten, verses two and seven, it's describing Cornelius, who is like probably a rock solid, tough Roman soldier. I mean, he was—he was in charge of a hundred Roman soldiers. He had probably seen some pretty fierce combat in his time, and he was also devout. It says that he prayed regularly, like at the at the set times of prayer, every morning, afternoon. He would like go off and he would just pray to God, hey. And uh, I really admire Cornelius actually. And uh, it says that he was this word, Eusebius. He was—he uh, was devout. Like he was really devoted to God. He prayed every day, hey. And the Hebrew term there is he was chasid. Everybody say Hasid. Hasid. He was like, he was a Hasid in the sense of he was devoted to God. He practiced godliness. So that's kind of a cool connection there. The whole concept of godliness, it means like somebody who prays every day. That's pretty simple, hey? That's like something on more of a practical level. So that's, that's kind of an overview of this term as it's used in the Apostolic Scriptures. Let's look at this term now in this parasha in, uh, in Genesis chapter 24, if you want to turn to Genesis 24. I need sticky notes for bookmarks so I don't have to like be jumping down every five minutes, hey? <laughs> Yeah, I actually have hundreds of those. I use them when I'm studying. Here, I'll show you. Actually, this is totally off base, but that's okay because I'm sometimes I'm a little off base. See this? You can see how far I got in the book because it's it's crammed with yellow sticky notes. <laughs> so anyway, I love little yellow sticky notes. They're some of my best friends. They help me find stuff when I need to uh, when I need to locate information. Okay, so um, in Genesis 24, verse 12, it's the first time this term comes up in 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 the scriptures it's when Eliezer is praying as he goes is he's gonna begin his mission to find Isaac his his perfect bride he's gonna find the one for Isaac and uh, he says "O Yahweh the God of my master Abraham please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham now guess what the word for loving kindness there is yeah it's chesed can everybody say chesed it's got the cool, scratchy sound. You have to kind of spit on the, spit on the, like the back of the neck of the person in front of you. Chesed. <laughs> chesed, yeah. That's the word. So he's saying, um, Please show chesed to my master Abraham. The New American Standard Bible translates that as loving kindness. They actually coined the term. You know, it's a contraction of loving and kindness, right? Um, Stern's translation rendered that word as grace. Uh, how, does your, how does your Bible render it? Any others? kindness okay it's a really big word and i want to dig into it because i think it's at the heart of who our god is and also uh who we can be to him okay like chesed means it doesn't just mean kindness i mean like you can be kind to an animal right uh you know we want want to be kind to everybody but this is actually a much more special word chesed means like it doesn't even just mean loving kindness, like being a little lovey while you're kind to someone. Um, it has the idea of devotion. Chesed means devotion. And it doesn't mean just like any kind of devotion. It's a covenant term. So if you're in like a serious committed relationship with someone, if you're in a covenant with someone or with the Almighty, then that's where you use this word. It's like a marital term basically, right? Chesed. And it means devotion. Covenant devotion. And... Uh, this is something cool just like he shows chesed to us like devotion we can actually show that back to him think about that for a sec like when we think of things like grace and loving-kindness like that's stuff that we receive from God right he shows us loving kindness and grace but it's not like we can really show loving kindness or grace to God like God doesn't need me to be gracious to him you know what I'm saying maybe I'm mad sometimes at him, and I need to like get over it and be gracious but that's not the idea here The idea is devotion. And what's cool is like just like God shows devotion to us, that's what we can show back to him. We can show him devotion. Maybe that's the only thing that we can like show him, hey? And like we learned in Cornelius, one way we can do that is just praying every day to him. I mean, that's so basic, hey, but when it comes to actually practicing it, woo, that's a challenge. I mean really like Genevieve and I, we've committed to praying together every morning, right? So we like Um, One of the first things we do in the morning after I get a cup of coffee usually so I can actually wake up a bit is we pray together and it's so hard because I don't want to pray in the morning because I'm tired or I'm groggy Or I'm grumpy or whatever you know or I just want to get going with my work day or whatever You kind of hit the ground running sometimes and uh, But but it's just so cool to think on a practical level that just like he's devoted to us We can show chesed. We can show that same devotion to him we can be uh, like you 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 know someone who practices devotion is a hasid right we just mentioned that so i'm a hasid in the original concept i'm hasidic i'm a hasidic jew in the original concept in each of us we can be hasidim we can be like people who are really devoted to god that's kind of the idea there yeah you, you could uh, you could it's like he has shown us intense devotion based on our mutually co- committed relationship and we can show him that same intense and committed devotion back. Then, uh, in twenty four twenty seven, chapter twenty four verse twenty seven, he uses another term. He couples it with the word with the term chesed. It says uh, he's praying again, and um, he's saying he said, "Blessed be Yahweh, the God of my master. <coughs> excuse me, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his chesed and his truth toward my master." As for me, Yahweh has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. So did you notice that? He used the term chesed, and then he coupled it with the term truth. Now, when when I use the term truth, what do you think of? In English, it means like the facts. It means reality. It means uh, saying something that's true um, as compared to saying something that's not true or lying. That's usually how we think about it, right? but uh, we also have another usage of the word also let's say in love songs or country songs when it talks about being true to somebody it's not talking about being factual or always telling them the truth necessarily it's more talking about being loyal right it's like i'm going to stick with you yeah and that's the idea behind this word the hebrew is emet can we all say emet you could spell it e-m-e-t i have some friends in saskatoon and they just had a son and they named him Emmet. Because of this word, I thought that's a pretty cool name for a boy. Emmet—it's the Hebrew word for truth, in the sense of like fierce loyalty, like you know, someone that you're fiercely loyal to. You have emet to that person. Yeah, it's a cool name. So again, this uh, this Hebrew term also Emmet, truth—it's a relational term. It's not a metaphysical term talking about states of reality. It's relational. It's used in the context of a covenant, a mutually committed relationship. So, uh, this, so this couplet here, chesed and emet. The Hebrew word and is va, right? So if we wanted to say like uh, chesed and emet, we would say chesed va-emet. I'm a Hebrew teacher, so I can't help myself right now. I'm teaching you Hebrew, okay? It's a chesed va-emet. Can you say that after me? Chesed va-emet. Yeah. And uh, it's a beautiful term. You could could say that chesed ve'emet, the full idea in Hebrew means fierce devotion and loyalty based on a mutually committed relationship, a covenant relationship. That's like chesed and emet. I'm going to tell a story for a second. Like when Jesse and I were first talking um, in my truck, like the way he talked about Jesse... I was like, wow, he has chesed and emet for Jesse. Like, he's fiercely devoted to her. He has, like, a serious loyalty thing for her, right? And uh, that's an example from, like, our friendship that I've seen, you know? So these are words that we all show in, like, our relationships with people and hopefully also our relationship with uh, the Holy One. Um, Here's a really cool poetic usage of this couplet. Chesed ve-emet, in uh, Proverbs chapter 3 Verse 3, you know, the, you know the one about like, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, right? Everybody knows that passage in Proverbs 3. But here's, here's the verse directly before it. It says, uh, Proverbs 3, 3, Don't let chesed and emet leave you. Don't let them leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Isn't that poetic? Like these words for... Uh, it's like it's like saying, "Don't let fierce covenant-based devotion and loyalty leave you." Like bind them around your neck, like you like you'd wear them like a necklace. You know, um, write them on the tablet of your heart. I mean, that, that is that is. Deuteronomy 6. Hmm? Deuteronomy six. Yes, that's right. In Deuteronomy six, what does it say about the words of Torah? Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be as totafot frontlets between your eyes. Those are those are phylacteries. How many of you have seen like Jewish people actually binding to felon, like wearing the black leather boxes, the phylacteries? Yeah, that's the idea. Actually that was the next thing next thing I was gonna share, Hannah. Like we're so tracking. Um, like the act of binding to felon, it's best understood in the context of chesed and Emet. It's like it's a fierce it's an act of fierce covenant based devotion and loyalty. Yeah. There's one other place where this couplet, Chesed Ve'emet, is used, and it's really meaningful also. John chapter 1, verse 17. It says, For the Torah, the law was given through Moshe, grace and truth were realized through Yeshua the Messiah. Guess what the term there in Hebrew is for grace and truth? Chesed Ve'emet. So it's like um, that's the gospel. So the Torah, like, you know, God's standards of living, his, his eternal law, that was given through the hands of Moses. But then, like, the fullness of that actually came alive in our hearts through Yeshua. Like, when we begin following Yeshua and committed discipleship, we begin to feel it. Like, you begin to feel this devotion to God. There's, like, this fierce loyalty to the Almighty that just flares up in your soul, hey? And you know what? That's the gospel that the Jewish people need to hear. Because if, if you're Jewish, sometimes it's just a cultural thing. You grow up doing Jewish stuff, you know. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with God. You can do Shabbat every week. You can do Passover. You don't even have to believe in God to do that stuff in the Jewish world. It's like, yeah, okay, you have the Torah, and that's good. The, the Torah is true. It is eternal. But it's not enough. Because, like, that, that covenant-based devotion, that fierce loyalty to God Himself, that only really comes into our hearts through Yeshua when we begin following Him as our, as our Savior, as our Rabbi, hey. And that's been my personal experience. It, it's like Yeshua is the kicker for me. He's the one who really makes this stuff come to life. Like He's the one why I'm why I'm here on Shabbat. Why we have a synagogue in Prince Albert. You know, that's that's our testimony of Him. Yeah. Let's talk about love stories for a couple minutes here. Like, this is the best love story, I think, in all of Scripture. Isaac and Rebecca and how they come together. It is so miraculous. Like, Eliezer travels hundreds of miles to the hometown where Abraham came from. The first girl he bumps into happens to be, like, their distant relative, and she's perfect for Isaac. Like, wow, hey? And I mean, you can tell too that he was floored. He was literally floored twice in the story. Like he just goes down on his face and starts worshiping and praising God because he's blown away. Hey, so I, I really, I really like that. Um, Here's my favorite Hebrew verse from from, uh, from this story in Genesis 26. It's in verse uh, 64 in Hebrew. It, I'll, I'll read it to you in Hebrew and then English. Each phrase it says, Rivka et eneha," and uh, and Re- and Rebecca lifted up her eyes, et and uh, saw Isaac, meol hagamol," and uh, fell off the camel. Oh, 24. Thanks, Genevieve. It's like, I don't know, there's something about Isaac. Like, it wasn't just Ellie getting floored in the story. When Rebecca first saw Isaac, she fell off the camel. It says in Hebrew, it's really funny. It's like, wow, what, what do you call that? Like, like he, he must have been a real knockout or something. I don't know. Yeah, swept right off the camel. So anyway, that's, that's romantic right there. And then Genesis 26 or So Genesis twenty-four sixty-four. Yeah. Okay. Here here here's something cool. Um this is I think especially applicable to you know when someone is single and they're looking for their life mate but it's also true to all of us as uh, let's say as husbands and wives and also as male and female like just as men and women we see Isaac doing something in this in this passage and we see Rebecca doing something and I feel like these are two areas where God is is maybe calling us to grow also it's an area that we can focus on what was Isaac doing in this portion let's look at him first um, Genesis 24 verse 63 so like Eliezer's gone to go find a bride for Isaac can you imagine being Isaac I would be so nervous I would be like who is he gonna bring back this is a this is suspenseful he's gone for weeks and um, then finally they're coming back and what is Rebecca doing I mean what is Isaac doing it says um, that he was walking in the field he was out in the countryside he was hiking in the evening and uh, what was he doing? It says he was meditating. So Isaac was out in the countryside meditating in the evening. Maybe he had gotten his his day of work done or whatever. The Hebrew term there is suach. You could say he was suaching. And uh, that like that that word has the concept of of like meditating, of, of thinking deeply. Hey, and uh, maybe that's a challenge for for all of us men to uh, take time to contemplate life, to think deeply. If you have a strong work ethic. If you love to work hard, this is a hard one. This is one hard one for me. (laughs) It's something I've been learning about lately, like actually taking time to stop and think about life on a deeper level. Uh, Something Genevieve and I have started doing has really helped in that regard. Every Friday evening before our special Sabbath evening dinner, we like to go for a walk in the country. And uh, sometimes they're short walks, sometimes they're more like hikes. But it gives us time to just get away from everything and... uh, just talk about the week. We talk about the past week. We review it. Talk about the highs and the lows. Um, talk about things that were like some of the the real the real uh, our favorite things from the week, um, things we learned. And it's really great for me because seriously, like by Friday, I don't even remember what happened on Sunday. Like it's gone, you know. So I I feel like it's really helped me to stay more sane, to stay more in touch with life, and uh, to think more deeply. And I I find that it really revives my me spiritually too. And uh, hey, that's what Isaac was doing. So you know, points for Isaac on that one. He was off to a good start. Um, what was Rebecca doing back home? In uh, Genesis twenty-four sixteen, Rebecca was like uh, doing normal life, really. You know, she was just going out to the well to get water. And how did Eliezer know that Rebecca was the one? Was he like, okay, God, the most beautiful woman who comes out here, that's got to be the one for, for Isaac, right? Is that what he said? No, he was like, the one who, who uh, offers to water my camels. Like the one who has a servant's heart. The one who's really helpful. She's the one. And, and sure enough, that's the way it worked, hey? So it's cool that Rebecca was like, she was cultivating a servant's heart. She was like learning how to be a kind person, how to be, how to be helpful, you know? I, I really admire that that is what Rebecca was focused on um, maybe that's something we can we can learn too you know for those of us who live at home maybe in our single I don't know if any of us here really, really applies to any of us but you know for younger people in the messianic community learn to honor and get along with your parents and family members <laughs> um, as the bride of Messiah we can learn to serve each other and to serve the world around us. We can learn how to offer the living water, just like Rebecca offered the water to uh, Eliezer. We can learn offer, We can offer the living water to a world around us that's dying of thirst. We can learn to work hard, preaching the gospel, making disciples for the Master, and then and then when the time comes, we'll be taken to Yeshua, our great Lover, for the uh, <coughs> the uh, marriage at the culmination of history. Here, here are two things that, um, you know how we've been talking about legacy? Hannah just had a, grand, a grandchild. Um, I think, man, most of us here have grandchildren already. And, uh, but we've been talking about praying for our children and grandchildren. Like even before we have kids, praying for them maybe years before they're born, right? Just so that when the time comes, we can say, you know what, we've been praying for you. You know, Praying for your great, 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 great grandchildren, knowing that God is going to answer those prayers, that that could make all the difference in their lives. I, I want to give you two practical things along those lines, things that we can be praying. Um, the story of Isaac and Rebecca. Wow. I'll, I'll share with you something that I see here that we can be praying. Like Their story was a love story that was written by God. Their love story honored the Almighty. It sanctified his name, and it inspired genuine and spontaneous worship in the hearts of those who heard about it. Did you notice that? Like Isaac and Rebecca, they was like they had a miracle story. They told it probably to hundreds of people by the ends of their lives, hey? And like look at Eliezer. When he saw what was happening, like how miraculous it was, how it like honored God, what did he do? He was like he just fell on his face. He was so awe, awestruck, hey? And like when, when we let God write our love stories, that's what it looks like. That's what happens. Yeah. I I can see that with Genevieve like how the Father brought us together and uh, you know like beautiful times we've had challenging moments that we've had and how God's grace has always come through like he's writing our love story and uh, it's a testimony that we have of him we love telling it. we love telling how we how we met on the mountain of blessing in Israel you know it's kind of ironic like I went to Israel with a heart just to work hard and to serve I went with an all-male work group and I ended up meeting the girl that I was going to marry like on the mountain of blessing. It's, a, it's kind of ironic. You know, it's a pretty cool story. So, that, you know, that, that's something from, from our lives. But here's something that you can pray for your children. You, you can pray that their love stories will be written by the holy one that their love stories will sanctify his name like they will bring great honor to him and uh, that their love stories will inspire genuine and spontaneous worship in the hearts of those who hear about them pray that for your great 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 grandchildren that every one of your great 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 grandchildren will have a love story like that because you know what that's something that's under fire in our society and when we pray it counteracts that that uh, that satanic assault yeah Oh, that would be wonderful, Hannah. Okay. Here's another thing that you can be praying for your descendants. Like, I'm big on this right now because, like, you know, I'm a relatively new father, and I want to learn how to pray into my children's and my, you know, et cetera's lives for a long time. Sorry, I didn't have to say great-great-great-grandchildren. I'll just say et cetera in in, in that instance, right? But um, it's the blessing that Rebecca's folks gave her as she was, like, leaving to go get married to Isaac. It's in Genesis 24, verse 60. And I want to break this down with you for a second. Genesis 24, 60. It says they blessed Rebekah, Rivka, and said to her, "May you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gate of those who hate them." Excuse me. So there, there are like there are two main elements there that I want to talk about. It's it's a blessing not just for Rivka; it's a blessing for her descendants. Did you notice that? Yes. And when you look at the Hebrew terms for that. Wow, they're bigger than what you'd think. <clears throat> okay, so um, on a mathematical level, thousands of ten thousands. How many people is that Minimal on a minimum? A thousand ten thousands is ten million. So thousands of ten thousands is at least 20 million. So they were saying, may your descendants, Rebecca, be at least 20 million people. Like, may you become the matriarch of a nation, is what they were saying. That's a powerful blessing. They were thinking long term there, weren't they? What would it look like if we began thinking long term about our, the legacy that we live on that level? Wow. Hey. Um, the, the second part. May they inherit the gates. May your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. The Hebrew term there for possess means to inherit or to possess. I love this. Okay. It's like it means to inherit or possess, and the root word there is rosh, which is the Hebrew word for head. What's the connection? It's It's like it implies headship or leadership. So when it talks about possessing there, it's talking about headship or leadership, okay? What does the gates mean? That's a specific term. It's like the gates in a city... That was where everybody did business, right? That's where the legislation was. So like the gates in Prince Albert is a uh, is City Hall, right? Uh, the gates of our country are in Ottawa. That's the concept of gates here, right? So you could say that the gates were the civic power centers of a region. Uh, the gates of a city are a city's political axis and economic hub. That's the idea behind gates. So to inherit the gates of a city means to assume leadership of that city's civic life, To become powerful in that city's political sphere and to be at the top of that city's economic sector that's what they were blessing rebecca's descendants to become Um, those who hate them (coughs) excuse me what does that mean that means anti-semites and people who hate god it's like saying may you always have power over the anti-semites and haters of god in this world so um here, here here's how i would phrase this this is something that i'm going to begin praying for my descendants it's like Saying, may your descendants be missional, because, you know what, like, if there's someone who hates you in a city, then that's not your city. So you're missional, you're going on a mission to that city. May your descendants be missional. May your descendants become leaders in their communities and wherever they go. And may your descendants number in the millions. Wow. What if we started praying for each other like that? What if we started praying for our children and grandchildren every, every Arab Shabbat, every Friday evening? like wow hey I'm starting to get in that groove and it's powerful I'm realizing that like we're the beginning of something great that is going to last for so many generations and I I want to I want to take a minute to just pray that for all of you here and uh, for us as a community for the Messianic Jewish community on a whole here, 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 here's, here's the prayer that I composed may your descendants be aggressively missional and outreach minded May your descendants assume leadership in the civic life of their cities and countries. May your descendants become powerful in the political spheres of their cities and countries. May your descendants be at the top of the economic sectors of their cities and countries. May your descendants always have power over the anti-Semites and enemies of God in this world. And may your physical and spiritual descendants number in the hundreds of millions. Who can say amen to that? No, I composed that. Thank you. I, I'm trying to break down the idea of this blessing for you, right? And uh, and like so, and you wonder why are the Jewish people historically such movers and shakers? Why do they often turn up at the at like the higher levels of, of society? Well, now you know why. It's built into the spiritual DNA of the people of Israel because they study the Torah, because they practice the Torah, because they understand the power of a of a parents and a grandparents and a great grandparents blessing. That's why. Start praying for your children and blessing them every Friday evening, every year of Shabbat, and man, a couple generations—they are going to be breaking out like you wouldn't believe, and impacting the world. And that's what we want. Let's let's turn back to first, uh, sorry, to Second Peter now. That was our look at the the parsha this week. <clears throat> Here, here's something really practical I just wanted to touch on in uh, Second Peter chapter one verse eight. He uh, he talks about a list of qualities that uh, if they're theirs and if, we're, if, if, if they're ours and if we're growing in them then um, he says like they're not going to make you useless or unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Master Yeshua the Messiah so it's like he's saying you know if you're growing in these areas then you're going to become fruitful like productive and useful for God and uh, in, in bringing people to know Yeshua hey and uh, I just wanted to point out that, man, like Simon Peter was a really good pragmatic Jew in saying that. He was talking about being useful, about being productive in uh, the knowledge of Yeshua. Hey, Um, What I get out of that is that there's a focus that can cause us to be fruitful and productive in terms of reaching the world around us and making disciples. Uh, Inversely, it's also true that there are many, many focuses that will cause us to be unfruitful and unproductive. In terms of reaching the world around us and making disciples, and I, I think it's important to differentiate as we encounter different ideas and different emphases between um, focuses that are productive and focuses that aren't productive. In terms of bringing people to Yeshua, helping people to know Him better, um, you know, there are a lot of there are a lot of there's a lot of stuff out of out there that can end up being distracting and can end up making us unfruitful in terms of bringing people to Yeshua. And hey, there are even some things, in, uh, some things that um, go under the messianic label that can sometimes um, be like that. Okay, so let's, let's look here in our final section at uh, the Jewish eschatology in Second Peter. Um, in terms of the end of days, how, how Peter saw some of these things. In, uh, in uh, chapter 1, verse 19, he says to uh, pay attention to something. And uh, this is what he compares it to. He compares it to, like, a light shining in a dark place. So I brought my Makita, my Makita light, to uh, exemplify that. I kind of wish it was dark in here. It would, it, would be a lot, it would be a lot more useful, hey? But the idea is, he said, the Holy Scriptures, they're like the light that's shining in a dark place. I'm going to be careful not to, like, shine this in your eyes, because it's a pretty good beam. But anyway, it's, you can imagine, um, let's say, being out in the middle of a forest, a really dark forest, and you're totally lost. Or maybe you, uh, maybe you have a map, and you know like, there's a path, but you can't even see your way. Hey, there we go. Thanks, Mike. I really want to shine this in your eyes, actually, because, uh, I don't know, you just have this impulse when you have a light to be like, ha, 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 you know, but <laughs> well, I'm not going to. <laughs> I wonder how that would look in the camera. I'll shine it in the camera because um, our live streaming audience, you know, it's not going to hurt them. How does that look? There we are. <laughs> I'll go back and check the recording and see how that did. But anyway, <laughs> all right, beaming down. But that, that's the picture that he gives through the Holy Scriptures. It's like when you're in a dark night and you're disoriented and you can't see where to go when you get in the word when you get in the prophetic element of the word it's like your flashlight right it's like you're lost and you can't see where you're going and when you connect with the word it's like flicking on the flashlight and all of a sudden you can navigate you can see where you're going hey and then uh, and then he said you know the uh, the ultimate goal is then the sun rises which is when we really get to know Yeshua when he comes back and that's like the morning star appearing the day dawning that's that's a very beautiful uh, poetic description too. <clears throat> Leave that there for now. Hey thanks Mike. Next time we'll have to like put sheets over all of the w- skylights in here and then we can make it really dark for the uh for the illustration. I'll call you guys up. You can come early and put get up on the roof and do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Okay. I'll remember that, Wayne. <laughs> so so he says here, he says, like, that's the prophetic word. Now, what prophetic word is he talking about? What was the Bible that Peter read? It was the Hebrew Bible, what's commonly called the Old Testament, right? Hmm. He's like saying to pay attention to the things in there. Think about that. Like, who, who are some of the prophets? Uh, Abraham, it says, he was a prophet. So Abraham is included in these, uh, these, uh, these prophets. Uh, Moses, the author of the Torah, he was the foremost of the prophets of Israel. So in that regard, the whole Torah is part of the prophetic word that Peter was saying, like, let's pay really, pay really close attention to this, hey? Here, here's a principle from Isaiah, chapter 46, verse 10. It says that God declares the end from the beginning. The Hebrew there says, Magid, Reshit, Meacharit. Like, he declares the end from Genesis. So the book of Genesis has some very strong prophetic elements in it that tell us about the end of days, that tell us about the culmination of history, that, that describe the Messianic era, even, when Yeshua comes back. Sometimes I think certain elements in the, in the Tanakh, like in the Hebrew Bible, I don't think they get as much air time. Um, maybe because the eschatology they communicate is uncomfortably pro-Israel in terms of the end of days return to the people of the people of Israel to the land of Israel where we will live reinstated in the land of Israel throughout the Messianic era I I think maybe the eschatology like the prophetic element in the uh, in the Hebrew Bible it might also be uncomfortably too pro Torah for most people in that it repeatedly prophesies an end of days revival in which we return to God's Torah and begin practicing his commandments and keeping the laws of the Old Testament oh my keeping the laws of the Old Testament it prophesies that's going to happen in the end of days. That is going to be the biblical revival, according to Deuteronomy 30, that happens in the end of days. With all our heart and soul. And you know what? Like, massive return of the people of Israel to the land of, the, of Israel, a re, like a revival in which the people of God, the body of Messiah, return to the Torah and begin practicing stuff from the Old Testament, that just does not fit into most people's worldview of the future. And I think maybe that's why sometimes the Tanakh doesn't get as much airtime when we talk about eschatology um, i think a lot of times like you know the jewish people and the torah are irrelevant at best to a lot of people sometimes even hated so like what often do we do you know sometimes we skip the prophetic elements of the tanakh and we just stick to the book of revelation which unfortunately makes no sense when it's removed from its context in the greater body of prophetic revelation communicated in the Tanakh have you noticed that like revelation gets a ton of airtime time in the prophetic world let's say on I don't know some big Christian TV station and like the rest of the prophetic element of the Bible gets almost no attention and revelation makes no sense if you take it out of the context of the rest of the Bible it's like it's totally up for grabs you can make it say anything maybe that's why I think why sometimes the whole prophetic world is such a gong show if we took the book of Revelation and we put it back into the context of the uh the torah i think it would begin to make some more sense it would be more consistent okay here's an example can you tell me what the one thing is that simone said not to be ignorant of he said there's one thing we're not to be ignorant of <laughs> i remember someone asked me this about eight years ago and i was like man i grew up hearing the bible like all the time my dad was a preacher um i don't know how many times i've read for you through second peter and i don't have a clue like it's funny, actually. Hey, it's like do do, doh. Simon Peter said to be ignorant, not to be ignorant of one thing, and it's the one thing I don't remember. Right? Well, here, here, I'll show, I'll, I'll tell you what it is. It's in Second uh, Peter chapter three, and he said not to be ignorant of a principle. He said not to be ignorant of a principle. Actually, I'll give you the verse here too. Second Peter chapter three verse eight. He said, "Don't be ignorant of the principle <clears throat> taught by Moses." You know, like the Moses who wrote the Torah in Psalm 90, verse 4, that with Yahweh a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. That's the, that's the thing he said, like, make sure you don't, you don't like, overlook this fact. Why? Why did he say that? Well, he's talking in the context of eschatology here, Jewish eschatology. Um, you know, referencing a psalm that Moses wrote. Here's something interesting. Based on this concept of a day in a thousand years, the Jewish sages and the apostles inferred from this passage that just like the week has seven days, the first cre- you know, the week of creation has seven days, there would be 7,000 year days of world history with the final millennial day being the reign of Messiah on earth. So you know you have like six work days and then you get to take it easy and rest on Shabbat and it's a beautiful time. Correlatively, the Jewish sages of old said, "Okay, so that means there's going to be six thousand years of world history, and then Messiah is going to come, and there's going to be like the uh, the Messianic era." Um, the term we would use from Revelation is like the thousand-year reign of Christ, right? Wow, that's in Revelation too. That isn't just traditional Jewish eschatology. The thousand-year reign of Christ—that's like a patently Jewish eschatological concept. Here, I'm going to read. I'm going to read you uh, two. Uh, two short passage passages one is from an early Christian source another is from an early Jewish source Um, I'm going to read you something from the book of Barnabas now Barnabas is not like not scripture Um, the the early uh, sages had very good reasons for not including the book of Barnabas in the New Testament but it was something that was read widely in the 100's and it does help us to understand how believers thought how some believers thought back then so that's why I want to share this with you. It's, just, it's interesting on that level, more of a scholastic level. In Barnabas chapter 15, he references this idea, and he says, The Sabbath is mentioned at the beginning of the creation, and God made in six days the works of his hands, and made an end on the seventh day, and rested on it, and sanctified it attend my children to the meaning of this expression he finished in six days this implies that the Lord will finish all things in six thousand years for a day is with him a thousand years and he himself testifieth, saying behold today will be as a thousand years therefore my children in six days that is in six thousand years all things will be finished And he rested on the seventh day this means when his son coming again shall destroy the time of the wicked man and judge the ungodly Wow so did you hear that there was a there was an element in the early in the early church that believed the same thing that uh, Simon Peter was talking about here which is a, a Jewish idea this is also in the Talmud like in the traditional Jewish literature this is a fascinating passage because it talks about how jewish people thought messiah was going to come about two thousand years ago and why they thought that get this it's in a sanhedrin 97a it has been taught in accordance with rabbi katina just as the seventh year is one year of release in seven so you know what what he's talking about there right like in the in israeli agriculture every seventh year you let the land lie fallow summer fallow you give it a rest right it's called the year of release the shanat hashmitah so he's saying um it's been taught in accordance with rabbi katina just as the seventh year is one year of release in seven so is the world one thousand years out of seven shall be fallow as it is written and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day and it is further said a psalm and song for the Sabbath day meaning the day that is altogether Sabbath maybe you've heard the Hebrew term before Yom Lo Shabbat it means like a day that is altogether Shabbat it's in a famous uh, messianic Jewish song anyway meaning the day that is altogether Sabbath and it is also said for a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past Okay, this is the kicker right here. The Tanah of Elijah teaches, the world is to exist 6,000 years. In the first 2,000, there was desolation. That was like in the early 2,000 when the world was in a state of relative anarchy. Then for 2,000 years, the Torah flourished. That began around Abraham. Abraham taught people God's Torah. He, uh, He brought them to faith. And the next 2,000 years is the Messianic era. But through our many iniquities, all these years have been lost so did you get that from Abraham until when Yeshua came was about two thousand years so they were saying that final two thousand years was supposed to be the messianic era but because of our sins Messiah never showed up now let me ask you was it true that Messiah never showed up on schedule to inaugurate the days of Messiah or was it true that because of our sins some of us didn't come to faith in him or recognize him maybe that's more the case yeah So isn't that interesting traditional Jewish source says Messiah was supposed to come 2,000 years and he never showed Wow hey yeah here's the footnote in the Talmud of that passage he should have come at the beginning of the last 2,000 years the delay is due to our sins Wow that again I'll give you the reference for that because if you're ever in a conversation with a Jewish person that's a powerful verse Traditional Judaism teaches in Sanhedrin 97A the Messiah was supposed to come two thousand years ago. Yeah, maybe he did. Haha. <laughs> anyway, um, that's like the historical background to someone Kifa saying not to be ignorant of the principle, this principle that was taught by Moses. Okay. Oh well, well, well. he leaves us with a practical conclusion here. <laughs> It's like based on one more prophecy in Isaiah 65 the Almighty says that he's going to like create a new heavens and a new earth, hey? And the Hebrew term there for create a new heavens and a new earth, it's the same word for the new moon when the, when the moon renews itself. That's actually going to happen on Sunday evening. Like get out get out and watch the western horizon on Sunday evening and you'll see that first little sliver of the quote new moon. Now let me ask you, is that a brand new moon like one that never existed before? Or is it the same moon, but it's renewing itself? Yeah, it's renewing itself, right? It's, it's chadash, it's new. Well, that's the same word for the new heavens and the new earth. And uh, Simon Peter says, this is a promise that we are watching for. He says, we are watching for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. And uh, the passage he's quoting here, Isaiah 65, the context here is God renewing the city of Jerusalem. Wow, hey? <laughs> I'll tell you one story about that here. In Second Peter chapter three, he uh, he talks about like the new heavens and the new earth, but he also talks about how there's going to be some massive destruction before that happens, like major meltdown. Like um, I don't know. What 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 movies kind of would would really communicate that idea? Like global meltdown, basically. Armageddon. Armageddon okay maybe a scenario kind of like that right and uh nuclear war yeah something like that maybe they have enough nuclear weapons to destroy the whole earth like to like totally destroy the entire planet several times over hey anyway Simon Peter says some stuff like that is going to happen um before God renews the heavens and the earth and makes everything right again and uh my buddies and i like i used to have some buddies in roster and we were really tight i would hitchhike up there like every weekend and, and spend time with them and we had a lot of fun and uh, we read that passage and uh it was like really useful sometimes uh, we were really into vehicles like we loved nice cars so we would like sit there and ogle nice cars when they went past right and then we read this passage and we were like hey everything's gonna burn in the end so we kind of we started like whenever we'd see nice cars or something we'd be like wow that's a nice car and then we'd be like eh. It's gonna burn <laughs> it's all gonna burn and that was like that kind of helped, helped us stay stay focused on what's really important and not just you know maybe becoming too materialistic or whatever so you can you can include that in your like um your liturgy your daily liturgy it's all gonna burn just say that every now and then you might even it's really important i'm, I'm kind of joking right but maybe there's an idea there so we, <clears throat> here, here's simon peter's conclusion in uh, chapter three verse 17 he says be on your guard so that you aren't carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall away from your own steadfastness he's like giving people a warning that there's some stuff in Paul's letters that's really hard to understand people who distort the scriptures like twist them they do that with Paul's letters too so people who take the Torah and twist it, maybe by saying things like it's all spiritual now when the Torah doesn't apply on a physical, literal level anymore. Um, if people do that, it's going to be really easy to you know make a mess of Paul's letters too and misinterpret them. So he gives a warning, and then he says, "So be on guard against errors like this." And uh, then in three verse fourteen, he gives him the other practical application. He says, uh, "Therefore, beloved, since you're looking for these things, you know like the new heavens and the new earth, like everything burning in the process." Um, be diligent to be found by him in shalom. So that's what he brings it down to. And shalom is a relational term too. So it's like he's saying, okay, if you're, watching, if you're expecting this stuff to happen, like, get along with each other until then. Thank you for joining us in this message. I pray that it's been an inspiration to you and your discipleship to Yeshua the Messiah. Crown of Messiah is a relatively small congregation with a massive mission. We're not just making disciples and teaching the Word of God here in our city. We're also doing that internationally through vehicles such as the internet. It is our joy to offer you these messages for free at absolutely no charge. At the same time, we do have ongoing overhead expenses. It costs us something to produce these teachings and get them out to you. And we would appreciate it if you would, in turn, support our work in a practical way. Help us cover some of our basic expenses. You can do that by going to our website, crownofmessiah.com, and going to the donate page, where you can make a one-time donation, or you can set up a monthly automated donation. I'm reminded of the words of Yeshua's apostle Paul in Galatians chapter six. He said, "Let the one who has taught the word share everything good with his teacher." So, if you're being taught the word by us, we would appreciate it if you would take the words of Yeshua's apostle seriously and make some type of return for the blessing that we are giving you for free. That way, we'll all be in it together, and we will be a team accomplishing the mission that Yeshua has given us and you will go from only being a receiver to also being a giver. If you're like most people, finances are tight. We understand that. Finances are tight for us too. That's why we need people like you to come alongside us and to back us in the work that Yeshua has called us to do. Thank you so much for making that donation at CrownMessiah.com and thank you for becoming a team member with us. We appreciate it.